Hunger Games, and may the odds be ever in your favor. I'm Natalie Dalzicki. And I'm Landry Ayers. Today is the day of the reaping. Two tributes have volunteered to risk their lives for your sadistic podcast entertainment to discuss none other than the Hunger Games saga. Peter Suderman, Features Editor at Reason, is here with us. Thanks for having me. And Marianne March, Marketing Manager for Libertarianism.org. Hello, everyone. The world of the Hunger Games, Pan Am, as it's called, uh, is named after a phrase attributed to the Roman poet Juvenal, uh, Panem et Circenses, which means bread and circuses, where citizens uh, give up portions of civic responsibility in exchange for food or entertainment, literal bread or circuses. <laughs> Do you think we live in a nation of bread and circuses? Well, it's a little interesting to watch this movie. Uh, the, you know, the series started in uh, the first film came out in 2012. And the idea that we would be in a country governed explicitly by a reality show was seen as kind of uh, far fetched and satirical. And <laughs> the, 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 it was supposed to be, you know, it was like, oh, my gosh, you know, it sort of sometimes seems like that politics feels like a reality show. We treat it as one. But it isn't really. And now, of course, our president is an actual reality show star who often treats, uh, you know, the politics and the the, the job of the presidency um, as a kind of uh, in, in much the same way that he did as uh, as a reality TV show host. And so there's certainly some some interesting parallels there in terms of uh, of of how politics became a kind of um, became a, a form of hateful entertainment in a way that I don't think it was when when the Hunger Games movie or at least it hadn't uh, it hadn't risen to the level that it has now um in in just a you know in in less than a decade um and uh you know there is a there is a weird sort of prescience uh, in this film and in this story uh that um that makes it for uh, for strange viewing today yeah, I definitely agree with what you're saying, Peter. And I think that we see something similar in news media where every story has a villain. Every story has a victim. There's somebody who's going to cry and scream. And, and oftentimes there's a hero as well. So we see this throughout our lives, especially in the news media and in politics, where it's all very theatrical. There's a lot of performative behavior that happens in society. Yeah. And I also think I know when I went, so I went back and rewatched these movies. I hadn't seen them in, for a very long time. Probably some of some of the movies since they came out, I haven't seen them. And it struck me as we might not be there yet in terms of like our news being as theatrical as the Hunger Games, like especially their um, like TV show hosts. But it got to the point where I was looking at it. I was like, oh, some of the things they're saying are pretty close. But then like they have the crazy hair and the crazy costumes, like the whole idea of living in the capital. And being like a uh, a celebrity of some sort was came with this great onus to like have your hair up and pink and be glittery and all these all their attire was very over the top and they really cared about really surface level things, uh, which kind of just played into more of the theatrical presence of their of their news media, but also of their like their perception and their perception of the world and their understanding of like their place in the world and what's important. Because I mean, even Effie Trinket, which I'm sure we're going to talk about her uh, a little bit later is dead set on this idea that like what she sees from the Capitol and from 
the people that are giving her the news and uh, presenting the Hunger Games is all of these um, superficial things that should be important in their lives. I think picking up your point about the outrageous outfits that the capital elites wear, the the hair colors and the uh, wild outfits, I think that we could pretty easily draw a parallel to to people today on social media using filters to change the way they look to YouTube celebrities who are always wearing new outfits, always have their makeup done and actively use software that changes the way they look in videos and in photos. Yeah, and I think it's also an indicator of social status. So like in their in Pan Am society, we see the districts that are quite literally starving and fighting each other. Um, and they're all giving up to the capital that has a surplus of food, a surplus of what seems to be a surplus of goods and wealth. And um, it's a social signifier that they are like the capitals depicted with like bright colors and glitter and all of that kind of stuff. And then you go to the districts like District 12 and everyone's wearing gray clothes. Everyone's much more plain looking. Um, mind you, that's also for the entertainment purpose of the movie to show us the difference between these two areas of presumably the same country. But I just thought it was interesting because even the theatrics they see on on the news, they like embrace those theatrics in their life as well. So I mean, the, the, the clothing and all of the, the sort of um, the theatricality of that uh, is a, a visual signifier of both the cultural and economic divide between the capital and the outer districts. And that that divide is sort of it's it's a kind of an interesting um, uh, it's it is the, it is a divide that we see in in our country today, um, in our mm -hmm. politics uh, and in our geography, uh, kind of in in reverse in the movie, um, because, you know, uh, the, the capital in the movie is in the center of the country and then everybody comes into mm -hmm. it. Right. But we have this we you know, we it is it's just extremely common to discuss the kind of coastal elites versus, you know, uh, Heartland, whatever conservatives or, or uh, uh, kind of um, divide in politics today. And there is, uh, you know, and, and that. The movie captures that amplifies that um, and then, you know, and, and turns it into a in, into a, a, a literal, you know, kind of a war game um, right between them where where their politics and their news media have fused and are, there's not really much difference between them. Right. Like they're, they're right. kind of the same thing. Um, and then politics and news media have become almost entirely because we don't see a, a huge amount of kind of other bureaucratic machinations outside of, you know, uh, some of the security forces. They've become almost entirely about a literal bloodlust um, and about and about turning everyone against each other for uh, for a kind of entertainment, a combination of entertainment and propaganda um, and uh, reminder of the capital's dominance and control. And it's really, you know, it, it it's it's a powerful metaphor in a lot of ways, in part because it sort of feels like the world we live in without without the without people killing each other in exactly the same way but and without you know sort of the uh the i mean we don't have we don't have that kind of game um and yet sometimes twitter feels a little bit like that sometimes cable news feels a little bit like that sometimes political interactions feel a little bit like they're just a a sort of a senseless game of in which people have been pointlessly pitted against each other um expected to kill and win uh, for everyone else's entertainment. Uh, I think it's it's really interesting that you bring up that point 
Peter, that, you know, we don't have a game like this. But I think one of the ideas that both you and Marianne hit upon when we were sort of preparing for this discussion was the sort of themes of wealth disparity that you highlighted previously between the outer districts and the capital. Initially, it made me think some people, I think, very easily could take this as a metaphor for the system that we do have, that we do have an economic, I mean, and I don't necessarily feel this to the same extent that others might feel that, but that there is a sort of pitting one another against each other in a a sort of capitalist society uh, where people have to compete for resources and and do things like that. And the state sort of uh, encourages this in a way that, um, pits people against one another. Um, Do you think that's a fair representation of both our society and what the film does? Well, I think that Pan Am is eerily familiar. And I think it would come as no surprise to anybody who's seen the movies or read the books that the author Suzanne Collins was inspired by Rome, as you mentioned, Landry. Um, She seems to pull some of the themes directly out of the USSR and the way that the country is set up and the, the tools that the institutions use. And a great gap between the, the haves and the haves nots in this society. And it harkens to the districts that were very similar to the USSR satellite states that were um, kind of suppressed and kept in dire straits. Um, there's occupation uh, of the military, the peacekeepers, just like um, the USSR experienced. And I think Snow is a direct par- parallel to uh, Stalin with the way he politically maneuvers with attacks on family members, use of public ex- executions and and harsh punishments for lawbreaking, as well as some pretty blatant civil liberties violations like freedom of speech. It's interesting that you saw more of that historical comparison as opposed to what some people might be like, oh, this is a metaphor for us today and and, and the road we're going down, where in reality, it, I, to me, it's not – it's definitely not trying to – exemplify the United States today. Um, Sure, you could take certain, you know, readings of it that way. But you could also, I very easily see exactly what you're trying to say, Marianne, about, you know, for instance, the the sort of orchestrated famine that happened in the Ukraine uh, with the USSR is very, very similar to the what we can kind of see as sort of a man-made control of resources in Pan Am amongst the districts as well. It sort of harkens back to a totalitarian state handbook mm-hmm. that yeah. a, a lot of these different <laughs> actors, while they might have different aims or methods, there are ways that they operate that are rather universal across uh, uh, across time. There is a use of, of control and uh, uh, control of resources and fear of other people and, and propagandizing fear uh, in a way that even uh, Snow says outright in the first movie, I think, is that, uh, or maybe it's the second, uh, Catch Fire, uh, is that fear is is extremely powerful and that the only thing perhaps more powerful than fear is hope, which is what Katniss Everdeen is supposed to embody as well. I, I think that part of what makes this series so powerful is that it's not just obviously working at one and only one metaphorical level. 
And yes. uh, the, the movies and the books draw a lot from history. They draw a lot from sort of contemporary um, economics and culture and politics. Um, and and it's it's a collage of elements that all feel like some that don't all go together in the real world, but like all feel like they fit together in this fictional world. And that's a big part of what makes it so compelling is that there's just and you know, sort of there's there's all of these different aspects to it. I do think it's it's probably you know important to to kind of dwell just a little bit on like is this is this an extended critique of American capitalism? And I actually think that while the, the movie supports a, a lot of readings, that's not one of them. It is a critique in some ways of uh, of uh, of American and of Western inequality, but it is inequality yes. that is taking place in the context, as you said, Landry, of of an explicitly authoritarian and totalitarian society, one in which people do not have individual rights, in which individuals are just and individual wills are just crushed on a regular basis. And this and and again, part of what, you know, sort of I, I think attracts libertarians to this movie, part of my, you know, sort of what I find powerful about it, um, about the series is that it always goes back to this the, the tension and the conflict between the individual and the collective and the collective is nearly always represented by an ex, by the state explicitly not by some big corporation not by you know sort of society at large although there's some some elements of that no, it's it is the state and the state collective that is uh disempowering individuals and Katniss represents, you know, is, is, is we're, uh, we as, as viewers and as readers are supposed to cheer for her because she is someone who wants to be, who has individual desires that we can relate to and who wants to liberate people from control of the state, which is, you know, sort of uh, the direction the trilogy goes in the long run. Yeah. And I think kind of relating to Peter's point and Landry's point from earlier, the way the state is controlling these, uh, their districts is through like controlling the resources, uh, creating famines and um, making this like uh, basically being the government is overbearing and interventionist into like and it's ha obviously has greedy hands into what the districts are doing, because what happens in the, is the districts have like one or two goods that they like focus on, so to speak. So each district is known for like whatever um, good or crop either grows best there or they're best at uh, producing. And they actually send portions of it to the capital. And this is the whole idea that Peter was just hitting on this idea of like the better for the collective, but this idea of creating a food scarcity through like unnatural, unnatural ways, like a, a man-made food scarcity is the basically the easiest way for politicians to like make sure that the citizens are divided amongst each other. So like it, creates a false sense of who the enemy is and i think that is a common theme throughout the entire uh entire saga because even towards the end i think it was in the last hunger games like the last actual hunger games in the quarter quell the whole theme throughout that movie is remember who the enemy is remember who the enemy is it's we're not going against the districts we're we're not pit we shouldn't be pitted against each other we should be angry at the government or the um those who represent the state, primarily President Snow. Well, Natalie brings up, I think, a, a very interesting point um, and one that we haven't really hit on very, very much. We, we've mostly been talking about Pan Am and the districts of Pan Am, but we haven't really talked about the actual uh, namesake of the series, which is the Hunger Games themselves. Um, and there's some really interesting 
choices that they make in sort of figuring out who is going to be a part of this sort of uh, bloodbath annual competition, which is that uh, it's teenagers, people between the ages of, I believe, 12 or 13 and 18 that are chosen at random, uh, one boy and one girl from each district, which must then fight to the death in an arena, which is uh, live streamed or or packaged as some sort of special event to uh, not people just in the capital, but also to inspire fear amongst all of the districts and remind them of what rebellion uh, can do. Why do you think they choose children to do this, of all people? Well, I I know that the author of Hunger Games, Suzanne Collins, wanted Katniss to be sort of a modern-day Theseus, Theseus from the ancient Greek myth of Theseus and the Minotaur. And I'm sure a lot of listeners are familiar with this myth, but I'll, I'll summarize it briefly, um, where the myth goes that um, – King Minos, king of Crete, had a vendetta against Athens for the death of his only son. And so he basically made a deal with Athens not to attack them. And in return, every nine years, they would send seven boys and seven girls to get eaten by the Minotaur, which is a monster, uh, half man, half bull, that was trapped in a maze uh, called the Labyrinth. And after several years of seven boys and seven girls routinely being sent to be eaten by this monster, Theseus, a man in Athens, decides to volunteer and he plans to go and and kill the Minotaur and kind of alleviate this problem for future generations. And how the story ends is that the daughter of King Minos, Ariadne, helps uh, Theseus and gives him a sword and a ball of string. And Theseus uses the ball of string to make his way through the maze. He finds the Minotaur, kills him, makes his way back out, collects all the children, and and off they sail. And that is very much an influence on Suzanne Collins in writing The Hunger Games. I think that's, I mean, it, it, that's clearly an inspiration um, and and part of where Collins comes from. But it's also, again, you know, to go back to kind of the many metaphors, uh, contemporary and historical here, um, it's also kind of about the college arms race, right? I mean, it, it is about um, this sense that we've had in the last 20 to 40 years that being that the expectations for American teenagers as they uh, graduate from high school have just been ratcheted up and ratcheted up and ratcheted up. And that they've become kind of impossible. That they pit that those that they are you know sort of pitted in uh, a war against each other. Um, that they are and that they are you know th- that these are our best and our brightest in many ways, right? Like the 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 Ivy League is of course the, you know the center of this, but it has spread out to to other colleges as well. And it's you know it is a it is about uh, what uh, David Brooks you know uh, called once like the activity kids right and like just sort of this expectation that you will, that that children uh, that teenagers in particular will just always have to be doing something and doing more and more and more and more to please the people above them um, and that they that teenagers in our in, in uh, you know elite teenagers in particular are in our world our tributes and that we kind of look to them to to be you know, to to sacrifice and to be symbolic sacrifices in our society. Um, and so, the, you know, uh, the movie and, and, and the books uh, series sort of pick up that. And, are, and because they are YA books and are targeted at a YA market, right, they're, they're trying to reflect um, and then metaphorically refract the experience of being a teenager uh, in, you know, in, in the United States in uh, the 21st century. 
and I think it's important that you you note that is that it's you know specifically kids that are considered you know elite or or you know um, high achieving students are considered the tributes, whereas people that aren't put in that category and may not be invested in as many things are largely forgotten and ignored and not considered important members of society. Which is you know there's not respect for people that choose not to attend college or to go and and, and learn a trade or something. So I think that's a really really apt description and sort of metaphor. That's a good point. And I think that also speaks to the culpability of adults in society, where this arms race amongst young people isn't being um, driven just by them. This, And we saw this recently with Felicity Huffman and, and, and Aunt Becky from Full House uh, that was <laughs> heartbreaking for a lot of people who loved her. And um, we see that these parents, and starting at a very young age, often as young as preschool, maybe even earlier, are are putting kids into this this arena of sorts and and making them compete against each other with high expectations. And I, I mean, I, I guess I what I, one of the things I love about this is the way that it just so fully captures teenage rage against like all forms of of authority right like the how how the the state and parents and like all old people in general and 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 how you know it's it just sort of it really kind of gets and and Jennifer Lawrence just such a, does such a good job of just being like brutally resentful in 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 the you know in in like the best like sullen teenager who you can still completely relate to sort of way that like the the world has just asked too much from her. And you know what? She's done it. But like, that doesn't mean that she thinks that it's good, that she wants to continue doing it. And part of what I think, you know, what, something that I'd forgotten about um, is that she, is that it instills in her a drive not to not to try and reform this project, but to break the system. And you see that even in the opening moments of the first movie where she says, you know, one of the things she uh, she doesn't ever want to have children. And that is a drive to break ch- to break the system of 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 parental state authority that she sees as uh, as the as uh you know uh, being the problem in her th- that she has to that she has to fix that she that she is not somebody who is like i want to rally everybody behind me and you know have a cause and all that she's just like i just want out um and she doesn't get to get out and she does end up becoming a symbol that people rally behind um but what she wants fundamentally from the beginning is just to break the system and not have to not have to be a cog in the machine herself. Well, I think there's two interesting points that you touch on there. I think for one, Katniss didn't choose to be that symbol, right? And it's had always flown under the radar, enjoyed like being in the quiet, hunting in the woods, and just never wanted to be a part of this greater system. And I think another thing that comes to mind when we're talking about Katniss's character in particular and kind of her rebuking like the status quo is kind of how the movie decided to... uh, to show like gender roles. I think it's very interesting. I know Marianne had pointed this out um, in her notes, but I think it's very interesting that uh, not only that Katniss is a female, but also that they portray her in such a way that um, in comparison to PETA, that her personality is much more rugged and much more like um, 
against against the system as Peter uh, as Peter was just saying and Peta is is kind of the character you look at with m- more feminine qualities in terms of like he's he's very caring he's very emotional um and Katniss is kind of the opposite so I I thought that definitely that comparison since those two are obviously uh take have a lot of screen time and and book time was interesting how Katniss was uh, is perceived kind of as the, as the tougher character of the two and the one that's more willing to go all the way to stop the cause but she recognizes that this was n- never something she wanted to do and tried to get out of it quite a few times she never wanted to be the mocking yeah she was definitely an unwilling symbol um and is ultimately yes. kind of thrust into the position and i think it's interesting because Although she what she resisted entering into the Hunger Games, it's also somewhat understandable why other people would would volunteer the tributes from especially districts one and two. In this society, the only way to find glory and in a lot of case riches is to become a victor, is to is to win in the Hunger Games. There's not really many other alternatives for people. And so I think that that is a parallel also to what we see throughout history and even today in child soldiers, where a lot of children are abducted and indoctrinated in as child soldiers, but sometimes they're just lured in with the promises of money and status, education and security. And that's, that's still coercion, but it's, um, I think it's worth pointing out that this is, happened throughout history in 1814 in the Napoleonic Wars and World War One and Two, And today we see children being used as soldiers in places like Myanmar and Somalia, uh, Yemen, and Syria. And um, they suffer devastating consequences, just like the just like the so-called winners in the Hunger Games. Uh, well, it also is interesting because my immediate thought was, you know, if we're trying to reflect it back on us to sort of think critically at ourselves as well, instead of just looking outward, is that there's also this sort of idea of, of you know, being victorious and uh, sort of being a, a champion for good in the depiction of police in society. And that's also reflected not in the children, but in the peacekeepers, uh, which I believe in the movies and the books, you are you have to uh, remain not married and serve something like 20 years. But uh, a lot of them reside either in the capital or are given positions of power of, of very, very forceful, violent authority in the districts. Um, and there is a very, very similar dynamic, uh, but still a, a sort of admiration that people have for police um, in this country as well today um, that our, our state bestows on on citizens, not just people. Um, so so it's interesting to, um, you know, look outward, but also look inward to to see how this is, a you know, it, it's also being run done by our own state. Panem is obviously a, a, a total police state, right? And when you when you watch this, you know, we, we all we work at institutions that are deeply concerned with like the fine grained particulars of public policy. And the only policy that you see in, in these movies is related to the use of police, the use of force and the maintenance of state power. You never see like any kind of other policy decisions really being made. There's no health care policy. There's no I mean, there's not even like there's sort of taxation in that the, the outer districts have to pay into the capital. But there's not there's not 
the kind of policy decisions that get made even in, you know, uh, Soviet Russia. It's just a sort of pure power dynamic. Um, and it has kind of reduced and, you know, and, uh, uh, a, a totalitarian society to to a sort of single aspect or two. Um, right. Which is you've got. You, you've got, you know, your your head dictator, uh, Snow, right, and and his police force. And then you've got the, the tool that he uses to oppress people, the other tool that he uses to oppress people, which is the game and the media that surrounds it. Um, and it's really a kind of interesting depiction of a world in which government has just completely given up on any sort of and anything that looks like governing on anything that looks like meaningful uh, governance at all, which you would um and and instead become entirely about the perpetuation of power by keeping the rabble down. Well, it's also interesting that you bring up like so- something like healthcare or or those kinds of things. We do see policing uh, through the peacekeepers, which is an incredibly ironic name considering they do public whippings and shoot people. And we do get kind of hints to like the the capital is way advanced in terms of technology, and they're clearly harboring that knowledge or. Harboring that knowledge from the districts in the sense that they're not, they're not sharing it and they're, they're not sharing it or they're purposely making sure the districts are poor enough that they can't advance to these technological levels. But, um, I believe Katniss's mother and her sister are like nurses or they're like, um, they do like a lot of like natural healing, that kind of stuff, because you do see quite a few times when someone gets injured or like Prim is a nurse, like an emergency nurse at the end when she when she dies. But um, you see things like that that make it interesting in comparison to like they're using like herbal medicines to uh, help uh, Gail after he has like these whipping scars. And then you get like you compare that to the technology they're using to put on the Hunger Games, like all of these like different um, predators that they put into the Hunger Games, this whole like basic basically this whole like made up world that they put all the tributes in um, this arena. And then you wonder like, okay, so why, why is there so much disparity? And that also, I mean, that also goes back to the, the wealth inequality, but I do, I do think it's interesting that we don't necessarily get glimpses of other parts of society or other parts of governance, other than that it's um, completely controlled by snow. And he's obviously very sadistic and uh, like, terrible uh, to to everyone that lives there but i just thought that was interesting the the comparison again is interesting peter you brought something up uh, a little bit earlier specifically mentioning that these books are are ya novels therefore marketed towards young adults and i think that's obviously like you said specifically because i mean the subject matter is is uh you know concerning teenagers but these movies are shockingly violent and dark do you think that that sort of label is appropriate? And if so, why do you think that this type of rather graphic content uh, is is necessary or or worth showing to uh, audiences of, of very young people? Well, they're they're YA books that have transcended the YA genre, um, and you know it, by in part. Uh, through the sort of the use of metaphor uh, that we've been talking about in part through in, in part because uh, of the sort of the seriousness with which they treat um, adolescents and teenage psyches and lives and interests and desires. And in part um, because of, of the violence um, and th- that violence is there because I don't know, 
we've all been teenagers and it feels it it feels it feels difficult it feels um like that it's a time of life that uh that for for people throughout history has always felt um especially brutal it is the time of proving right where you become where you become an adult you were a child and you've got to go through something to get to the other side and i think it draws you know a, a, something we haven't mentioned um, but it draws on a sort of a history of a of a type of book, um, and I'm specifically thinking of of Ender's Game um, here, which oh, is you know uh, which uh, the first version of that was written in the 70s, and then the novel came out in the 1980s, um, and it is it's not technically a YA novel, but it's a novel about children who are incredibly violent to each other as they are training to uh, fight off an alien invasion. Um, right. And you can go back to stuff uh, like the, um, Oh, I'm now just completely forgetting like Lord of the flies. Uh, right. And this idea that, that being a teenager is, is a violent time. If, and it, it, it at least psychologically um, if, and then, you know, uh, and then what these stories do is they literalize that psychological violence um, turning it into uh, literal, you know, turning it into actual violence that serves as a metaphor for what it feels like to be 14 or 16 uh, and, and trying to get to the other side of, uh, of, uh, of adolescence and become an adult. And so, I, you know, I, I think it's totally appropriate. It certainly appeals to a lot of people. It captures a lot of that feeling. Um, and uh, and if you go, I mean, gosh, if you look back at the last 50 years of pop culture it's it's a story that's all over even something like star wars you know luke skywalker yep. it's not quite as <laughs> as gory um you know it's quite as grim or bleak but that that story of you're a you're a young person you need to grow up and that's going to require violent trials that pit you against your peers is a story that we have seen over and over and over again and i think that it's not an accident I think that this series, while it has a lot of mass appeal, it's definitely not for everyone. I think a lot of people are turned off by the barbarism and, and the violence amongst children. I think the reason it resonates with young people and, and people of all age demographics is because, especially for teenagers, they're the tight control they live under, the regiments of their days with going to school and participating in activities and being on kind of a conveyor belt of going through different levels of education and then out into the working world. And I think there's a natural desire to, to fight against that control, kind of like we were speaking of earlier. But I think also for teenagers, they reach a point when they have an understanding that they're that they have the physical and the mental strength to inflict real damage on the world that if they choose to do so they could be very violent and and cause a lot of destruction in their communities and and beyond and i think that these books and similar books like ender's game reckon with that and they provide a a story for young people that shows that there's a choice that we can choose between indulging in kind of our lizard brains and and rising above them and living with integrity. Well, I think also a big element that both of you were were sort of hitting hint, hinting at was that like while you're while you're a teenager, there's this sense of you're questioning authority. So when obviously when you're in adolescence, like your parents and your teachers um 
in most cases, many kids respect them and listen to them. And I think a common theme throughout this whole movie was Katniss was trying trying to understand not only who to trust, but also like questioning the power of authority or like the abuse of that power. Um, Because you could see an internal struggle with her trying to decide like once she they had taken down snow, if the rebellion had actually turned in basically to the new Pan Am. And I think she and you can obviously see it uh, at the end of the last movie. This isn't a spoiler alert. This movie's been out forever. Um, where she uh, shoots with her ar- uh, shoots an arrow into the rebellion's leader um, instead of killing Snow because she didn't want to perpetuate or repeat history um, for Pan Am. She wanted it to be. She wanted freedom for the their country, and she could foresee that the authority or the power that the rebellion had gotten was turning the rebellion into what the capital had been um, and that abuse of power. And I think this whole story, having kids, not kids, having teenagers at the center of it um, really helps young adults understand that kind of like internal struggle over not only who to trust, but like the authority you should give value to. Um, And you, you can obviously see that, throughout the whole story that uh, Katniss didn't didn't know, didn't want to trust anyone, not even PETA to some extent once he was brainwashed by the Capitol, but just was out of struggle the whole time until she learned like, oh, this is like, this is, freedom's going to come at a cost here, whatever it is. And I just want to make sure that we don't repeat our mistakes, uh, which is obviously always comes up um, in today's politics and and discussions about like not making the same mistakes we made 30 years ago or not repeating history. Um, And I think that theme is also really big, especially towards uh, the end of the last movie. Um, Yeah. She's a system breaker and she's not just in favor of getting better people in power. She's in favor of, she always ends up making the choice to try and stop people from having too much power rather than, trying to get them to exercise it in a more just way. It was such a shock to me when I first read the books years ago when the final the end of the final book when President President Coyne, the leader of District 13, when she suggests that they have one last Hunger Games with children from right. the Capitol, I was <laughs> blown away. I did not see that coming. And then I was blown away yet again when Katniss, who we were all expecting to to kill President Snow, although he was already kind of dying, it's it's implied by uh, right. by his method of using poison against enemies and drinking it himself. But when she actually shoots Coyne in the end, it's such a validation and it... And it kind of brought a, a relief as a as a reader and as a watcher of the movies when because Katniss agrees she agrees that yeah we'll have one last one last Hunger Games and put this to bed and I felt so betrayed but then she she came around in the end and got me I think throughout this whole film there's like this assumption this is kind of related but there's like this assumption that humans have this like impulse or this like thirst for war and destruction. And I don't know if this is just prevalent amongst those in the capital who like, who enjoy watching the hunger games. It's not something they despise. Like you saw the big crowds and the big cheers for the news that introduced all the new tributes and they follow it. Like, like we would follow like reality TV, like they follow PETA and Katniss's love story. And um, I just think it's, so it like Landry was saying earlier, it's so dark. And I think it it does have a negative outlook on the fact that like 
humans prefer like war and destruction. Do you think that was an intention of the film? Or do you think that was just like a side effect after they made this film? So like Landry was saying earlier, so violent. I think that Suzanne Collins was speaking to human nature and also speaking to how people behave when put in duress. Um, Evolutionary biologists largely agree that the human brain has has three main parts. There's the lizard brain, the brainstem and the cerebellum that guides thirst and hunger and procreation and territorial behavior. The limbic part of the brain, which is the social and the tribal part that, that guides people's emotions. And then there's the neocortex, which is where we find language and abstract thought and reasoning. And I think the problem in Pan-M that prevents people from using their neocortex and even the limbic part of their brain that would make them care more about their neighbors and other people is that the parts of our brain that prevents us from from behaving in antisocial ways is suppressed because the social system is set up to to make children into gladiators where the antisocial behavior of killing other people has been corrupted so far as to condone violence against innocent people. One last question, and it's possibly, I think, one of the most important questions is, are you team Gale or team PETA? <laughs> Do you have to ask? <laughs> I, I, you know, there is more disagreement amongst the fan base than I was oh. expecting. Well, I'm Team PETA all day. <laughs> I agree. I'm all for the Baker's boy. I don't get Gale. I don't understand why people love him. I don't care. Yeah, <laughs> sure, he was there from the beginning, but yeah, I, but there is in the very beginning about he, him. In the very beginning, he prevents Katniss from killing a deer. He was already getting in the way. <laughs> it's very true. He was always in the way. All I'm going to say on this note is that I typically give preference to any Hemsworth brother, uh, whether they're in the Hunger Games or if they're Thor and the like. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I I guess I'm against you guys on this one. But that question strikes me as a a Twilight-esque question as well, Landry. We're doing it. That's the next episode. I'm I'm Team Gale for the same reason. I think every movie should be required to have a Hemsworth. Thank you. Like, I mean, and there wow. are enough of them, right? Like, we need just, you know, there's some, there's, there's a Hemsworth in in Westworld. Like, I, yes. I swear, I went through a a six week period here, uh, some at, earlier this year, where like nearly every movie I saw had a Hemsworth in it. Um, and they, and they it's should just all be in one movie. It's just we just like at this point, like, why not just lean into the all Hemsworth expanded universe like everything should be hemsworths <laughs> we should only like we should get rid of actors entirely just clone hemsworths <laughs> and like have digital hemsworths you know even if you're not a hemsworth you should be required to like put on like a a, a, a hemsworth bodysuit so you look like one um I, I just i think that we should they should be the only actors in hollywood you're right <laughs> except for our other favorite hunger games westworld crossover jeffrey wright oh. who also i think should be in a, a lot of more movies because i love jeffrey wright the, I, when i was re-watching these movies landry the that was like one of the first things i noticed i was like oh my gosh it's bernard because <laughs> i had like completely <laughs> forgot he was in this movie <laughs> jeff wright is jeffrey wright so is good. so good and has been so good for so long there's a a story um, that I went about when he was played one of the two bad guys in the movie uh, Shaft with Samuel L. Jackson, which came out I like, <laughs> oh, almost. Yeah. And, and the other bad guy was played by Christian Bale. Um, 
pre Batman, oh. and <laughs> nice. and they and they test screened this movie, uh, and the and Christian Bale was the final villain in the original version, and he like the it sort of came down to a conflict between Samuel L. Jackson and Christian Bale, and the 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 audience was like, wait, why is he going after Christian Bale? Jeffrey Ray <laughs> is obviously the real main villain here, and they rewrote and reshot the movie around Jeffrey Wright. Uh, uh, being the main villain at the end because the audience, even though he had had a much smaller role and the whole movie had been structured to resolve into a conflict between Sam Jackson and Christian Bale, Jeff Wright just owned his couple of scenes so much that viewers were like, he's he's the actual guy we want to see more of here at the end. Um, And he's been doing that for 20 years or so. He's just fantastic in everything he's in. He's so good. And he, I think... At least from what I've seen of him, he is in a very similar role. He's always like a very analytical actor. Um, you you should I watch Shaft, uh, which I know I just have to put it on the features list. <laughs> a scene of him kind of barking insults and orders from a bathroom, and I won't describe it any more than that. It is it is not a cold, reserved, analytical Jeff Wright. It is absolutely oh, scene chewing um crazy much younger but still sort of has this sense of like middle-aged weariness even though he's he's much uh it's a much more uh energetic role um but yeah he brings he cool. brings such life to everything and and in this movie you know in this series here right it's interesting to see him because uh you we've been thinking of him as kind of a a little more of a leading man um in in Westworld where he is a more central character especially in the first two seasons uh and mm-hmm. he's just a supporting player here um and it just kind of speaks to the depth of the casting in the Hunger Games films which i think was really oh, yeah. a, a big a big part of the reason that they hit so well and that they worked so well is that just about every role and there's so many kind of little characters but they all stand out they're so distinct they're all so well well cast and well played um, and not always in ways that you would expect, um, uh, you know, I mean, even even Stanley Tucci uh, as our, you know, as our uh, reality TV, sh- TV show host is playing a little bit of a different role than he than he often plays Sort of doesn't feel like, oh, he's just playing Stanley Tucci again. Um, and this is I mean, it's it's a it is a big science fiction blockbuster that actually placed a surprising amount of a of uh, importance and 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 put a lot of thought into the casting and in and into the characters and it made it feel a little bit different a little more like a character piece than just a kind of you know an action movie that moved through the beats and i believe this was the last um film that philip seymour hoffman was in because he passed away before the production of the last film i think that's right if i'm correct so they actually had to like remake him from previous film filming they had of him for the last movie um like leia style that like they did in star wars because i believe he passed away at some point during during filming of the last film so they actually had to take previous cuts of things he said in uh, in the previous films and and kind of um bring them back in to make it flow which i think they did an awesome job you would have no idea they did that um but yeah, he's also a great character in this as well. Yeah, and I love the supporting characters of Joanne and Effie. They are probably oh, my two yes. favorites throughout the entire series. <laughs> yeah, Effie's so good. I don't what actress is that? 
I think uh, Elizabeth Snow. Uh, is that right? Effie Trinket is played by Elizabeth Banks. Banks. What? Yep. And oh, again, I did not yeah. know that. Wow. Again, okay. the depth of the supporting casting here yeah. um, is cool. is just incredible. And and in some cases, casting against type, right? Um, uh, right. You've also, I mean, like, you've got, this is a movie with, with Lenny Kravitz and Woody Harrelson, uh, right? Yes, and Lenny, so and Lenny, Lenny you forget that Lenny, <laughs> that Lenny Kravitz is just like such a, he's, he's a great, he does a great job in this, but he's also just such an interesting person to look at. And and yes. like <laughs> even beyond the costuming and and sort of the the great you know hair and makeup and and all the the great uh, production work on this movie, um, he's just like he has like a super interesting face. Um, whereas like Wes Bentley is just sort of he's a little more conventionally like just an attractive guy, and then they just do the like he has the the greatest craziest beard. Like I, I think I've ever seen, and I'm, I'm yeah. so, so jealous of it. And every time I watch, I'm just like, uh, maybe I should, I should, uh, I should <laughs> do Seneca a cool crane my beard. <laughs> and they just keep throwing more at you. They're like, you want more? Mahershala Ali, yeah. Julianne Moore, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. We got them all. Star yeah. <laughs> yeah, they did such an awesome job on that. But still, none of them are as good as as any Hemsworth. I just, I want to be clear. Right. <laughs> For the record, the Hemsworth brothers win. <laughs> the odds are ever in their favor. So now for the time where we tell you about the other things that we are enjoying. This is Locked In. Marianne, Landry, Peter, what other things are you watching while we're still in quarantine over 150 days later? <laughs> I recently watched The King of Staten Island with Pete Davidson and Bill Burr. Ah, and yes. I, I really enjoyed it. It was very funny, kind of loosely based on Pete Davidson's life, who I have to admit I wasn't a fan of before this movie. Right. Um, <laughs> but it was it was really well cast with Marissa Tomei, who plays Pete's mom. And I, I recommend it. It was, it was definitely watchable. And who doesn't love Bill Burr? And... <laughs> Um, other than that, uh, the movie that I recently watched is Knives Out, which is streaming on Amazon Prime. Uh, I definitely recommend. It's a it's a twist on a whodunit, and again, it's a star studded cast with Christopher Plummer and um, and so many that need not even be mentioned by me right now. Uh, but I definitely <laughs> recommend that as well. And I recently read uh, Brave New World, which actually had some interesting oh. interesting parallels. I thought with with Hunger Games as as we talked about throughout this discussion there's so many parallels that we could draw to to fiction and to real life from the hunger games and i think that's that's an interesting one have you started watching the tv show version of brave new world which is uh airing on peacock the new streaming Ooh. series uh new, new <laughs> oh. streaming app. i had no idea that, but i guess maybe i is have that to nbc is that NBC streaming app? Yes. yes. So um, ah. if you have Comcast, you get it. Uh, you get it as part of the package, but it's actually free for everyone. So um, anybody who oh, has any internet sweet. service can get uh, a an ad supported version completely for free. That's awesome. What have you been watching? Uh, what What I've actually been uh, uh, watching is me play a video game, The Last of Us, <laughs> The Last of Us Part Two. Um, oh, also featuring Jeffrey Wright. Uh, in a in a voice role, I believe, yes. right? Yes. Uh, so he he has a it's a it's um it's a notable role, though maybe not a huge one. Um, mm, but okay. it is uh it's the sequel to a 2013 game, The Last of Us. Uh, both are by Naughty Dog Studios, which is a game company that um, aims to produce really cinematic, story driven video games that are not so much about player choice, 
but in fact, but are instead about character and about narrative and about often uh, you are forced as a player. There's no there's no option to do something else in uh, at a pivotal point, whereas many games are sort of about, oh, you get to a point and there's a big choice in these games. You're playing as a character who is a distinct and specific person, not just a kind of blank who you fill in with your own choices. And that person makes choices and you get to know these people um, and their community. Uh, often these uh, these characters will have sort of close friends, confidants who um, who will run around with you in, in the games. Uh, the first game was uh, was one of the best games I've ever played, one of the best stories in a video game that I've ever encountered and has, I think, the best ending of any video game. And I don't want to say too much about it, but it's a post-apocalyptic um, a post-apocalyptic game uh, in which the world has, you know, sort of uh, been collapsed after a pandemic. A little too real, uh, but the pandemic turns <laughs> most people into into basically zombies. They're not called zombies, but they're zombies in this game. Um, and the the hero that you play as has to is a smuggler who has to ferry a young woman uh, across the United States or across part of the United States to a sort of rebel group. Um, because this young woman appears to be uh, immune to the virus. Um, and so, you know, she gets bit, she doesn't turn. And the idea is that there, that this rebel group called the Fireflies is going to use her and her biology to create a cure. But of course, we get there and there's some big choices that get made, not by the player, but by the character at the very end. <laughs> and um, and it, it's it's a, a sort of fascinating exercise in a in the kind of trolley problem. Um, it's also just a super well produced game. But the second one takes the ending of the first game and does some really just really phenomenal stuff with extrapolating uh, sort of how how that might play out years later. Um, and again, I don't want to spoil this too much. But what's really interesting about this game is that in some ways it's sort of super woke, like. The we, we turns out that that our that our our main character, who is the the young woman from the first game, that's who you spend at least the first part of the game playing as. Um, uh, it, she's uh, we we find out she's a lesbian, and uh, then like there's a there's a a major trans character who later in the game, you know, um, uh, there's uh, one of the one of the other major characters is is a woman who has a uh, who has like a, a super built body type, right? Like is sort um, and you know, which has caused all sorts of controversy. But then the game itself, the sort of the the, the big idea of the game is is one that is sort of not maybe super in vogue right now, which is that you should really try to understand the people who you think are your enemies and that the people you think you who are your enemies, they have good reasons, often good reasons and motivations for doing the things that they're doing. Um, and because this game sort of puts you in, in the perspective of other people, it forces you to, to sort of, to, to identify with your enemies to sort of think through, wait, these people that who, who I thought were just sort of like, I, they're faceless, they're nameless. Uh, I just need to kill them. Actually, what it says is actually they're doing what they're doing for a reason. And you need to think about that. And you need to understand that. And if you don't have that, it's going to make you kind of soulless and awful. Um, and so it's just a fascinating nice. kind of uh, it's, it's a great, super well produced, super, super engaging video game. It's very bleak also. Um, so, you know, some people have said it's so bleak that it's maybe not quite fun, but it's a really great exercise in using the form to to make a point and to explore an idea um, that is 
kind of interesting and powerful. Very cool. Uh, it's really interesting you bring that up, uh, Peter, because uh, I've talked about this on our show before, but uh, I'll, it's worth bringing up again. I'm a big fan of Critical Role, which is a yeah. uh, Dungeons and Dragons actual play uh, live streaming show and, and podcast. And I, I actually would have brought it up already because they had uh, they produced it all together in, in a studio in Los Angeles. Um, and because of the pandemic, they ceased production and decided not to do it and record remotely, as a lot of uh, different shows are doing. Um, they wanted to, you know, sort of preserve the sort of production uh, uh, standards that they have set before. So for four months, the show that was going on live every single week uh, was not being played. And it has a extremely somewhat and sometimes a little bit more than it needs to be devoted fan base. Um such that they hold, like I think, like the third or fourth highest grossing Kickstarter project of, of all time uh, for an animated TV series that eventually got picked up by Amazon Studios. Um, and they recently, just two weeks ago, came back and uh, began production again. So I have been catching up and, and watching some episodes of that as well um, because I really love it. But uh, – Almost the entire cast, if not the entire cast of that show, Critical Role, is uh, plays roles in The Last of Us Part Two, uh, and two of them happen to be two of the leads in the game. Um, so I have been sort of following that that game as well uh, because a lot of uh, people that are sort of you know around their circle are are involved with it as well. So it's it's kind of interesting. But uh, yes, Ashley Johnson who plays the lead uh, in the first game and is also in the second, as well as Laura Bailey. Um, who is in the second game as well, um, and maybe partially in the first one, though I haven't played it myself. Um, they are cast members on the show as well. So I'm, I'm a very, very big fan of them as performers. Uh, and though I don't have a PlayStation, I have been looking for ways to acquire one so that I can uh, indulge that game at some point <laughs> um, and also punish myself by playing Dark Souls because I'm fascinated by the art in that <laughs> game as well. Um, another D&D podcast that I've been getting into recently is a produced by College Humor. Um, it is uh, on their streaming service, uh, as, but I've been watching it on YouTube, but their streaming service Dropout has a, a series called Dimension 20 that is hosted and created by... Uh, a uh, college humor uh, producer named Brennan Lee Mulligan, who you might have seen in other college humor shows like Adam Ruins Everything, uh, Uh. or he did some viral videos where he played like the Tide CEO and told people not to eat Tide Pods anymore or to inject (laughs) bleach. Oh my Um, gosh. (laughs) And he's he's just a hilarious uh, performer with, uh, and they've got lots of comedians like Siobhan Thompson, who is a a writer for Rick and Morty and uh, Zach Oyama and, and a lot of people in that sort of college humor upright citizens brigade circle um are are all players in a much more comedy uh, sort of improvised focused uh series the one that i've been watching is called fantasy high uh and it is uh sort of it the the thrust of the series is what if john hughes directed a dungeons and dragons campaign uh so they are all teenagers that go to a high school and also are you know, happen to live in a fantasy world where the school is for adventurers and they're learning magic and uh, sword play skills and there's demons and angels and monsters and stuff like that. But they're also like 
going through puberty and having religious, you know, crises of faith. And they have like tough home lives. And one of them like doesn't know who his father is. And another has like a rude sister or something like that. Uh, so it's, it's very, very funny while also kind of nerdy in that aspect. So if you're interested in that, I also highly recommend it. And then finally, I have really, really, really been enjoying and have actually blasted through all of the episodes on Netflix of Supermarket Sweep. Um, I need to watch Hosted that. by a former libertarian, uh, California Libertarian Party, I believe, executive director, David Ruprecht. Um, so little, little bit of odd sort of uh, uh, link there, but uh it is the perfect thing to put on in the background while I am working and not editing a podcast because I can look up and see glorious 1980s to early 2000s style <laughs> and brand names. And I was like, kudos. I haven't had a kudo in I don't know how long, <laughs> but I really wanted a kudo after I watched it. So uh, a, a wonderful bit of uh, relaxing nostalgia if you're interested in that. I highly recommend Supermarket Sweep and it's on Netflix now. I'll have to check that one out. I so I guess I should stick with the the Hemsworth uh, brother trend. I finally got around to watching Extraction on Netflix. Um, I thought I thought it was all right. Uh, I, it was one of those typical uh, action movies where he is like the the hunky spy, basically. Um, well, actually, I guess he's more of like whatever they call the person that like goes in to help someone like capture them and brings them out to safety, um, but or extracts them up for the title. Uh, the other stuff I've been watching, I did see Knives Out. I thought that was very good. I'm also a huge fan of like the Clue-esque movies. Um, so that hit right there. I also thought it was pretty similar to um, Murder on the Orient Express. Uh, that movie uh, came out recently as well within the last two years or th- years or so maybe uh and then finally i just finished the outsider on hbo uh it's a show based off of the stephen king novel i was pleasantly surprised at how much i liked it because i i wasn't the first few episodes i didn't like it was hard for me to get into uh but i kind of liked the darker turn it took and it got uh, much more sci-fi uh than the previous episodes so i really enjoyed that i hope to read the book soon um, but I reserved it on Arlington's public library to do an ebook, but it could be a few weeks till I get that. And I'm also hoping that I can get my hands on a copy of the Hunger Games uh, prequel that Susan Collins mm-hmm. wrote. Um, it's proving difficult to find a copy, uh, especially since I'm a, a big library person. But um, I'm hoping to read that. It's uh, Susan Collins came out with it in May, I believe. And it's supposed to be, like I said, the prequel to the Hunger Games saga. And it's supposed to give us more background on like President Snow and how he came to be President Snow. Um, so I'm interested to read that. I, again, I think it's a uh, true to form in the sense that it's a young adult novel. I don't think they are going to make it any more complicated, uh, the storyline any more complicated or anything like that. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of what I've been, what I've been up to that. And, uh, this is, I guess, just more so a game, but me and all my housemates got a, uh, cornhole set. So we've been playing that outside a lot. Classic. When we can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If we were to host a Hunger Games, would you volunteer as tribute? Let us know on Twitter at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock, with an E, Pod. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. 
We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by Landry Ayers as a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.